וגם אני פתאום Welcome to Kolot. Again, this is your host, Rabbi Hillel Kappenstein, director of the Columbus Community Kolel, and it's a great honor and privilege to welcome all of you to our next episode with Dr. Mayor Wickler, entitled Making Marriage Great. And we are very excited for this episode because Dr. Wickler um, is a parent from many miles away to so many people my children including, with his books, his lectures. Uh, it's really hard to know where to begin, how much impact Dr. Wickler has had on so many people's lives, marriages, and uh, children's upbringing, etc. So this is a fascinating episode. And of course, if it's not for you to gain from, I'm sure you'll know someone who will benefit greatly from this episode. So make sure to share with them, which wouldn't be a bad idea anyways. If you can subscribe and leave a review and all those good fun things, that would also be appreciated. But without any further ado, allow me to tell you about our guest. Dr. Mayor Wickler is a psychotherapist and family counselor in a full-time private practice with offices in Lakewood, New Jersey and Brooklyn, New York. He is a sought-after speaker in the U.S., U.K., and Israel. He's published over 70 articles in various clinical journals, as well as popular periodicals such as the Jewish Observer and Mishpacha magazine. He's also written 11 books on marriage, parenting, stories of Hashkacha Pratis, published by Feldheim Art Scroll, Hamudia, Treasures, Israel Bookshop, and Menucha publishers. Dr. Wickler, thank you so much and welcome to Colote. Thank you for having me. So this is a real honor to have an expert like yourself join us on this program. But before we get into like the meat and potatoes of and, and substance of what we want to cover tonight, can you share with our listeners a little bit about your professional education, your training and trajectory of your career? For sure. Be happy to. I received my master's and doctoral degrees in clinical social work from the Wurzweiler School of Social Work at Yeshiva University. I worked for 12 years in a mental health clinic, after which I did a short stint as an adjunct professor at Wurzweiler. And then uh, I was offered a full professorship, but at the advice of my rebellion, I turned it down and devoted myself to my full-time practice, which I'm still doing today. Um, as you mentioned, I've done a fair amount of writing. It's actually 12 books now, and it's uh, over 100 articles, uh, to be exact. And um, I am also have um, some of my public lectures, about 100 of them, uh, posted online on a fabulous website called TorahAnytime.com. And anyone who's not familiar with it really should check it out because it's an amazing resource. And it's a privilege of me to be included on their roster of speakers. It's uh, truly, truly um, an incredible app. For those who don't have it, I heavily, heavily recommend you download the app. It's free of charge. Um, so go do it now. Uh, I want to ask you about the rise of marital conflict. It seems like every day we're hearing new news and the quality of the relationships are really um, are, are seemingly becoming more and more fractured. And for those who, you know, may not know the it's it's something that the marriage is something that we we all understand has challenges and we all understand that it has its ups and downs. But until recently it's always been within it's it seemed like it's always been in a certain you know within a certain bracket today it seems like it's exploded um conflicts we hear of so many i'm sure it's not just because of media and we hear about it more and it's easily accessible there must also be an in, uh, uptake as well and given your expertise can you explain to us a little bit why that is so okay well first i really want to <laughs> challenge the premise of your question if i may sure um, 
you said that it seems to be on the rise. But the truth is, we're not really sure about that. We don't have statistics on, on marriage conflict, what it was like before to compare it to today. Now, there does seem to be an increase, but I believe that there were serious marriage conflicts many years ago as well, but we didn't know about it. We didn't hear about it. It was kind of kept under the carpet behind closed doors, but I'm not sure that couples were, were so much happier years ago than they are today. So what is the what is the cause of us hearing so much more about it today? There's maybe another way of putting the question, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, there's a much greater utilization of marriage counseling. Many, many more people are going through marriage counseling today than they ever did before. And that's for a couple of reasons. Number one, there's still somewhat of a stigma for getting professional help, but it's been reduced over the years. There's a greater availability of mental health services than there used to be. Um, in Lakewood, for example, where I have, a, have an office, um, 30, 40 years ago, there was maybe one or two private practitioners available in the community. That was it. Today, there's at least two uh, large agencies that employ uh, combined maybe uh, close to 100 therapists working, not, not all full time, but still available. And there's a much greater utilization of mental health services today. So it does seem as if there's more to marital conflict today than there used to be. I mean, I'm not sure if that's really so, but whether it's more or less, even one marriage that's in crisis is one too many. And people ask me, what's the cause of most marriage conflict today? They say to me, it's probably in-law interference, right? So I smile, and because most people like to believe what they think. And other people say, oh, it's, they're having conflicts about how to deal with the kids, the children. That's what it's all about. I smile again. And some people say, oh, it's money. They're arguing about money. That's really the cause of marital problems today. Well, it's true that couples do quarrel about money, parenting, in-law interference. Yes, those are very common and serious interference in, in the harmony of, of, of marriage. But if people really want to know what I think is the underlying major cause of the vast majority of marital conflicts today, as I think you do, because you invited me on your program. So I believe it has to do with the communication between husband and wife. I know the couples that I see, they have very poor and ineffective communication with each other. And when a couple is communicating ineffectively, then anything becomes a problem. However, if they can communicate effectively, then they could resolve any problem. Well, what, what do I mean by effective communication? That's a very general term. So I define effective marital communication as communication between a husband and wife where both husband and wife feel heard and understood by each other. On the other hand, if anybody is in a marriage where they don't feel fully understood and heard by their spouse, and to my way of thinking, there's nothing more frustrating, disappointing, and aggravating than having to live with someone that you don't feel really understands you and, and, and gets it when you try to explain what you want, what you need from them. So what I try to do with the couples that I work with is help them really as a coach to guide them to learn how to communicate more effectively with each other. Now, I'll just take it a step further. Um, to explain a little bit about the way I work with couples. Most people coming for marriage counseling, whether they admit it or not, are secretly, or maybe not so secretly, looking for an ally. Because most people consider themselves to be reasonable, rational, logical people. If they're having trouble in marriage, it's obviously because of the spouse, nothing to do with them. But they can't get through the spouse. So they assume the marriage counselor is going to be someone who's 
reasonable, logical, and rational. So they, their thinking is, well, two reasonable, logical, rational people may be able to get through to that one stubborn, intractable spouse who's causing all the problems. In other words, what the couple is looking for in a marriage counselor is an arbitrator. Someone's going to listen to both sides and say, you're right, and the other one is wrong. And as I like to, to joke, uh, marriage is a relationship between two people where one of them is always right and the other one is the husband. That's right. <laughs> I knew that was coming. Yeah, okay. I've said it before, but I get a laugh every time. Yeah. So I use it again. So um, an arbitrator's role is to listen to both sides and say who's right and who's wrong. And most couples, since they think, most spouses think that they have the logical, rational, normal point of view. And it's the spouse that's mixed up or confused. So if I go to marriage counseling, the marriage counselor is going to be on my side and arbitrate and convince my spouse that I'm right, they're wrong, and we go happily ever after. Of course, that never works out in practice. Although in fantasy, it may be very appealing. The other option is what I call mediation. And that's where the role of the marriage counselor or the third party is not to, to offer a judgment, to be machria between the two sides, but rather to guide the couple, to coach them how to be more effective in expressing their feelings and how to be more effective in listening so the speaker feels heard. And so I see my, my role as a coach, coaching both the husband and wife, not taking sides, not agreeing or disagreeing with either one, but trying to help them both to communicate more effectively. And I've seen through the years of my practice that when couples can learn to communicate effectively, there is literally no stumbling block issue, sticking point that cannot be resolved. They don't get everything they want. Nothing in life is perfect, but they get more than they got before they came for the marriage counseling. So I, I want to follow up on that because you, you said um, that you would like to challenge me and let's see if I could challenge your challenge. But you said that you would like to um, take away the premise that there's really, maybe there's not such an uptake in marital conflict. There's just perhaps a bit better awareness. Um, my question to you is, wouldn't you agree there is definitely a correlation between um, relationships and mental health? The more mentally, uh, you know, mentally healthy someone is, their ability and capability to maintain a relationship would also, um, to some extent, go along with that, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So if there's a tremendous rise in people's mental health and, you know, in general, we, you know, definitely, you know, um, you, we could say there's more awareness and everything like that, but there's, you know, everyone, I, I mean, there are very few people that deny this, but, you know, by and large, everyone agrees that there's a tremendous mental health increase. So wouldn't that mean, at least on some level, that there's a tremendous uptake in marital conflict aside from the awareness, aside from people getting, you know, out of the shadows and removing the stigma? When, when you say a mental health increase, you mean there's an increase in mental illness? Yes. Okay. Well, I haven't seen any studies that indicate that today's society is more mentally ill than it was years ago. So I don't know if that's really so. I'm not saying it isn't. I'm just saying I don't know. So it's possible all these things were really potentially, you're not saying it, it is for sure, but potentially it could be that really things stayed, but now we're actually dealing with what we never dealt with. Yes, exactly. I see you're a good listener. You heard what I was trying to say. <laughs> As you would call it, reflective listening, right? Something like That's that. That's right. Yes. yes. I pay attention. I feel, I feel I'm being heard. Yeah, validated. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Um, so maybe you would say that's a myth. Um, I want to ask you about other myths per, uh, per se as it relates to marriage. Um, 
one myth that I heard, and I'm curious that if you agree or disagree, is uh, something that I got from, uh, I mentioned this to you in our previous conversation from doctors John and Julie Gottman, who have the Gottman Institute in Seattle. I'm a huge fan. I actually even have a copy. I think I do have a copy of their book, um, Seven Principles of Making Marriage Work, which um, I found very fascinating. We gave a course on it here. Um, one of their myths is that, a, that couples say we should never, ever, ever, ever go to sleep until we resolve every conflict. Never go to bed. Never fall asleep angry at one another. And he says, no, that's a myth. You could go, you could go, you could go to sleep a little upset. You know, we'll pick this up in the morning and you'll probably have a better head to deal with it then. Do you agree? Disagree? And whatever the answer is, keep share with us some other myths as it relates to marriage. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Uh, another myth. Uh, that goes along with that is that many people, I believe, mistakenly believe that it's healthy to argue that fighting is good for the marriage because when a couple fights, they get things off their chest, they air it out, and then they make up, and it's a, it's a good thing to be able to fight. And when couples are not fighting, that means it's, it's not a good marriage. It's a sign of a good marriage when the couple's able to fight. And fighting is good and healthy and should be encouraged. I think that's a myth. I think couples fight. And when I'm talking about fight, I'm not talking about disagreeing. There's a difference between a disagreement and a fight. In a disagreement, we have a different point of view. We share our different points of view. We don't necessarily, we try to present our, our try to convince our spouse of our point of view. That's fine. But an argument where there's raised voices, where there may be uh, nibble pear or foul language used or insults or attacks, that's what I call an argument. Now, I believe that couples argue because they haven't learned to communicate effectively. If couples knew how to communicate effectively, they would still have differences of opinion, but they wouldn't be fighting with each other. And I believe fighting is very destructive for the marriage and for the whole family. So I think that's, that's one myth that arguments are, are healthy, should be encouraged. I don't believe in that. I, I, my definition of an argument, by the way, is a communication session between two people on a sensitive or controversial subject where both parties want to be the speaker and neither one is prepared to be the listener. And then you have an argument. As long as you have one speaker and one listener, by definition, you'll never have an argument. It doesn't mean you'll agree on everything, but you won't have arguments. Okay, that's great. I, I love that. But now let me let, let's play this one out if we can. Sure. Um, so you're talking, and I'm gonna pretend that I um, I agree that there's no rise in mental health issues today, or something. Pick whatever one it is, and I'm just listening and going along, and and I agree to be that person that. I, uh, I'm going to allow you to talk and I'm going to make sure that I listen, but in the back of my head, like, when are you going to listen to me? So how do you, you know, how can both things be true that I want to make sure you hear my opinion, right? But in order to not let this get to an argument, I have to do the listening. How do you have both? Okay. So we're all familiar with the game of ping pong and tennis. And the way we play those games is the ball goes back and forth over the net. And in most conversation, that's the way it works. I speak and you listen, then you speak and I listen, and we share each one of us a point of view and so on. That's the way normal conversation works. And we've been doing that since we learned to speak at, at one or two years old. And there's a reason we use that system. And the reason very simply is it's effective. People understand each other. That's how the world works. That's how communication works. But every rule has an exception. And the exception to that rule is when husbands and wives are trying to communicate on a sensitive or controversial subject, that system just isn't going to work out very well. Because as you said, when someone's listening, they're really not listening with both ears. Their one ear is, listen, is rehearsing the rebuttal. <laughs> and when you're rehearsing a rebuttal, you're not really listening and paying attention. So the way it works the way I encourage couples to do it is with the principle that I call taking turns. 
you'll be the speaker now, I'll listen. But tomorrow, I want to speak and you'll listen to me. And we'll go back and forth like that, taking turns. But to try to be the speaker, both of us be the speaker in the same session, that's a recipe for, for an argument. And we already discussed that. I think you call that the the 24 hour rule or something like that. One of your books. That's right. So read it well, (laughs) well, my only question is what happens when someone doesn't want to wait for 24 hours? Like by then this might not even be an issue anymore. Or we're going to be in something new that we're going to have to discuss. Like, you know, how do you, and then by the way, who goes first, right? So how does that play itself out? Okay. I'll answer the second question first, since that's easier. <laughs> since no one went first before, because we've never done this before. So I tell couples they can go home, flip a coin, play two out of two tic-tac-toe games, or arm wrestle. It doesn't really matter who goes first. But once someone goes first, then that sets in, in place the, the, the system where... We're going to alternate, go back and forth. And what was your your first question? I remind me again. Oh, uh, I need you to remind me to remind you. Um, well, the, the, how do you wait twenty four hours? Oh, okay. So um, certainly not everyone can. And when you can't, then you'll simply go back to the old system called arguing. But after the dust has been settled and the argument is over, then you'll go back to communicating, taking turns with um, uh, calmer uh, feelings and, uh, and, and lower tension. And you'll try to prevent the next argument from happening because you have more time and less intense feelings about it. So sometimes couples can't do it because one of them is too upset or they mo- both may, may be too upset. But if one is upset and the other one has more self-control, then it can still work. I see you're upset with me. Maybe you want to be the speaker. I'm willing to be the listener now. I'll speak tomorrow, but I'm okay. I'm willing to listen to you. And even though you're upset and angry, we're not having an argument because I'm trying to listen to you and understand how you feel, what's bothering you, why it bothers you, what you would have wanted me to do differently. Is it safe to say that conflict does not equal argument then? Conflict means we're in conflict, but I'm not arguing in the sense that I'm not really listening and not letting you talk. I'm going to let you talk and I'll talk tomorrow. In other words, we're not arguing, but we're in a conflict. Can those, is that correct? Absolutely. Okay. Wow. Nice pickup over here. Uh, <laughs> my, uh, my next question, you know, Hassan and well, Kala. I, 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 I didn't finish going through the the marital myths. Oh, no, I didn't wait my full 24 hours. Go ahead, continue. (laughs) If you wanted to hear some more. Yeah, let's go for it. it. We just just mentioned one. Another marital myth is that marriage is a cure for mental illness. If someone's mentally ill or has any psychological or emotional problem before marriage, marriage is not going to cure the emotional, psychological, mental problem. In some cases, it may even make it worse. Yeah. And a lot of people say, well, you know, once he gets married, he'll have friends. Once she gets married, she'll get organized. It doesn't work that way. Marriage is not a cure. It's not a panacea. People that have problems before marriage are going to have problems after marriage. And that doesn't mean they shouldn't get married. But people shouldn't be looking to marry off those who have some kind of psychological problem in the hope that the marriage is somehow going to cure their disorder because it isn't and it's going to make it worse. And uh, also in just in general, a general myth is that marriage is not a solution to life's problems. It's an opportunity It's a golden opportunity. It's a wonderful institution. But it's not a solution to all of life's problems. I had a chavrusa years ago when we were both single who said to me, Mayor, I realize that marriage is not going to solve all my problems. But I got to the point in life where I'm ready to trade my old problems in for new ones. 
And I like the way he put it. So I'm quoting it now. That's good. That. Wow. It's <laughs> well put. You gotta say. Um, so when, when a chassan and a kala get married, a bride and a groom, they walk down to the chuppah. They couldn't be any happier. They're on cloud nine. In fact, I have to say when I, uh, um, when I became a chassan myself and I was in Camp Monk and, um, Rev. David Cohen Schlitter um, asked me after I got engaged. Uh, he, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but it's so it's classic. Uh, he said to me, "Hello, did you get down on your did you get down on your hands and knees?" I said, "Revy, that's guyish." And he said back, "I know, but I see you're on cloud nine, and it's time to get down to earth." But uh, um, but all that aside. I can hear him saying it. Yeah, you can. <laughs> I I just saw him last week in Florida by the Arts Girl dinner and. Baruch Hashem, nothing's, he's as sharp as ever. Um, my question is, how, how do we keep that passion? How do you keep that excitement? How do you, um, obviously it's going to have a different meaning because as you go through life and have more challenges and journey together, literally, it's the, it's our own personal lech lecha, right? Uh, every couple has. But how do you keep that passion, that excitement? And I want to go on all levels. Um, how do you keep the excitement from a spiritual, how we're going to grow together, physical, how we're attracted to each other, and emotional, how we're going to connect to one another. How do you keep the le- those three things? How do you keep that on the level that you had when you walked down the chuppah? It's a great question and an important one. Uh, let's take each one of those three items that you mentioned separately. Okay. To keep that emotional connection which uh, sometimes um, uh, there's infatuation when a couple gets engaged, and that's not the same as emotional connection. It's a pseudo-connection, but it can be maintained and continued till 120, and I think the, the, the path to maintaining the emotional connection in marriage is when a couple makes an effort to share their feelings with each other. When you share your feelings, your deep innermost feelings, both positive and negative, with your life's partner, that builds a very, very strong bond and an emotional connection that can last and be intense till 120. Now, some couples have a hard time sharing their feelings with anybody. Some, some people have a hard time sharing their feelings. Just men, but yeah. <laughs> well, even men can learn to share their feelings with their spouse. Some, yeah. And, and, and uh, if they can't, if they're even able to talk about that, it's helpful. But when, when feelings are shared, deep personal feelings, both positive and negative, that automatically builds a connection and a bond on an emotional level that can last a lifetime. As far as the physical connection and attraction, I think Chazal were the greatest psychologists in, in the details of the halachas of Taras and Mishpacha, family purity. I think if you look at that from the standpoint of maintaining a, an attraction throughout the marriage, I think that is what what puts us well ahead and above the non-Jewish world. And studies have shown that average couples in the non-Jewish world go through long periods of disinterest and apathy in each other, even though the, the relationship may be positive, because there's a kind of a saturation point that's reached in in non-Jewish homes or homes that are not keeping the laws of family purity, but in those families that do uh, keep Taras and Mishpacha and family purity, I think there's a tremendous uh, benefit in that area. And as far as um, uh, maintaining the the values and and, and, uh, keeping that strong throughout the marriage, if a couple shares goals 
spiritual goals and works towards achieving those goals, whether it's an area of Achnasus Orchem or Lima Torah or whatever is the priority for that couple, if they work on growing in, in any particular area in Yiddishkeit, in Judaism, and they're working on it together, that I think brings a tremendous bond. You know, um, uh, the, the, the Torah tells us that Yaakov Avinu had to wait seven years to marry Rachel. And the Torah says they were, in his eyes, like a few days. And the Dubna Magid asks a very good question on that, on that Pasuk. He says, if people are in love with each other, seven days feels like seven years. It's not the other way around. How could the Torah say, because of his love for Rachel, the seven years was like seven days? It doesn't make sense. So the Dubna Magad explains that when we say we love fish, it doesn't mean we really love fish. We love the taste of the fish. We love a fish meal, a fish dinner. We enjoy eating the fish. We don't love the fish. Yaakov loved Rachel not because she made him feel good. She boosted his ego. Uh, she, she pleased him. She satisfied him. He loved Rachel because he saw in Rachel Imenu a partner to complete his mission of building Kla Israel. And it was such an important historic mission that the two were embarking on that what seven years in the history of Kla Israel, in the future history of Kla Israel, it was like a few days to him because it was such a monumental task that he knew he was going to be partnering with Rachel to build, and that's why it seemed to him like a few days. So when couples are working together on shared spiritual goals, that's what keeps the marriage vibrant and strong till 120. Great, that's beautiful, thank you. Um, You're very welcome. I just had, uh, my wife and I just celebrated, we just celebrated our eighth anniversary, and- uh, Thank you, and I told my wife, it felt like two days, Tish Bob and Yom Kippur, right? <laughs> It's a joke. Anyways, moving along. Um, can we talk about the consequences of unchecked uh, marital conflict? What the consequences are, not just on the couple, but on the children. Because sometimes I, you know, in, in teaching Torah to such a diverse crowd here in Columbus, I sometimes tell them, all right, you really should do this mitzvah for God. But if you ain't willing to do it for God, at least do it for you because it's going to help you. So I, I want to extend that. Um, of course, if you have, you know, you have shalom bias, if there's the home is peaceful and happy, it'll be better for your lives. But if you don't at least want to do it for yourself, at least do it for your children. Can you outline uh, on a super high level what exactly is the uh, what, what happens? What's the debacle? What, what could be the uh, the outcome and consequences when children observe uh, conflict? Well, there's a difference between conflict, as we spoke before. Correct. Where there might be a disagreement and arguments and fighting and uh, name calling, raised voices. And when the conflict reaches that level, it's nothing less than catastrophic as far as the impact on the children. The children suffer the most, no question about it. The parents may feel, okay, we disagree, we had an argument, but they have adult coping skills that children don't have. So it's like um, uh, someone wearing a bulletproof vest may not like being shot at, but isn't afraid of losing their life. But the people next to them that don't have the bulletproof vest, they're much more vulnerable. It's the same thing here. The parents are wearing a kind of set of armor that I'm referring to as, as adult coping skills. Children don't have that. And as a result, they're extremely vulnerable. And the damage can be devastating for the children. There's a, there's a rub in Lakewood who deals primarily with divorces and getting. And he shared with me 
something he was told by a, a lawyer that he had to deal with on a particular case. He was a non-Jewish lawyer. He was an Iraqi war veteran. And he looked the part, six foot, 200 pound, muscle bound man with tattoos all over his body. And he shared with the Rav in a quiet moment that as a result of his uh, wartime experiences, he was wounded. He was shot at and wounded. He saw his friends die in front of him. And he also had to kill people as part of his service in the army. He said, in spite of those experiences, the most traumatic experience in his life was lying in bed at night and hearing his parents argue. Wow. When children are exposed to excessively high levels of conflict between their parents, again, where there's raised voices, name-calling, attacks, insults, it causes them to develop a whole range of anxiety disorders, depression, and in some extreme cases, children later in life, in young adulthood and, and, and even beyond that, can become suicidal as a result of the devastating stress and pressure they experience, and the terror of their parents arguing. The, the worst fear of any child is that the parents may separate. That's the worst fear. Worse than, than the house burning down or someone getting sick is the parents separating. That's terrifying to any child. And although the parents may not have any plans to separate, and they may be willing to just continue on as they're doing. But to the child who is exposed to that high level of conflict, that's all they think about. They can't concentrate in school. Sometimes they become what's called triangulated, where the parents will badmouth each other to the child. The child is forced to take sides. And when a child is forced to take sides, the child always loses because he knows that whichever side he chooses, he's being disloyal to the other. And he's then saddled with an enormous burden of guilt for being disloyal to one parent, to the other. It, it's a no-win situation for the child. And that stress and pressure and guilt can carry with them into adulthood. And the parents may not even be living anymore and the child is still suffering with anxiety disorders, depression, and in some cases, as I said, even suicidal thoughts. If I may interrupt for a second. You're not interrupting. Um, when this whole theory behind childhood and how much that shapes a person for the rest of their life, that sounds very much like what you're saying. There's, a re there's truly a lot to it. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So my, so my question is, human beings are for the most part, not really in control of their childhood. Um, they can't dict I mean, we, you and I, we could control ourselves, hopefully, but children can't really control their home when they're five, six, seven years old. So Correct. what do, I mean, you know, I, I assume five and six year olds won't be listening to the podcast, but let's say for people that were five and six years old or seven years old, and now they're 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, or 120, what can they do to reverse the damage that was done to them? Okay. But before I answer that question, I just want to go back to something you said that children can't control how they're raised. And that's true. They also can't control how their parents deal with each other. Nevertheless, it's practically universal that children still feel responsible, as illogical as that sounds, but children feel responsible for the conflict between their parents. And when parents separate, 
the younger the child, the more guilty they feel. And the reasoning on a child level is, if I was a better son or daughter, then my parents would never have left me. So I must have done something wrong. It must be my fault. Now, we know that's not true. But the younger the child, the more prevalent that idea is. And when children feel responsible for the conflict between their parents, and they want to do something about it, to control it, which they can't, then that frustration adds another level of pain and suffering for that child that can sometimes last a lifetime. Well, in in terms of what they can do is they can enter therapy and with the help of a therapist, learn to overcome those past traumas and heal those wounds. What can someone do if they're traumatized in in battle and in war? I had uh, an uncle, Oliver Shalom, who served in the Second World War. And he told me when he came back from the army, he realized that his, it was before we knew what PTSD was, post-traumatic stress disorder, but he was suffering from it, even though it hadn't been labeled yet. And he knew that in order to overcome the traumas that he experienced in wartime, he needed help. And he saw a therapist at that time, it wasn't so prevalent, it was so widely done, but he realized he needed help to get over this, otherwise not gonna live a normal life. And he did, to his credit, see a therapist that helped him overcome his traumas. And he had a wonderful long life and he was passed away just a few years ago in his late nineties. And uh, he had a wonderful life after that. So children who, who unfortunately are, are raised in homes with as high levels of conflict, where there was stress and there was no harmony at home, no shalom bias, and they're experiencing the after effects of anxiety or depression or suicidal thoughts as a result of it. There is help available. They can overcome the trauma, but they're going to need the guidance of a mental health professional who can help them with it. But it's something that definitely can be overcome and those wounds can heal. I want to ask you about parents um, setting up their children for success as it relates uh, specifically for marriage. I, you know, I'll, I'll tell you that I remember my chasen shmuz, it was eight and a half or so year, eight years ago or so. Uh, well, for sure, eight, but I don't remember eight and a half, eight and a quarter. But I was listening to Rav uh, Yosef, uh, Yosef Greenfeld from Lakewood, who I Baruch Hashem, uh, get to speak to regularly. And I remember he made a point that, you know, what, what, what does it mean to be ready for marriage? Like what, what's the definition? And like, it, you know, it's not really something that you could just so easily say in a sentence. But one of the things that he said is that when a person comes to a realization that this is going to be my path to shameless, that I'm imperfect right now, my midos aren't quite there. And I want to have a life where I get to grow and get complete is when they start to realize, okay, now this is something that I'm embarking on. Um, what are the things, and, and that's like a Rebbe, you know, to a Talmud, a rabbi to a, a student, a disciple. What about a parent to a child? Other than modeling, of course, that's really, that's uh, one, two, and three. But number four, what else can parents uh, do to set up their children for success in marriage? Okay, so I first would like to comment on your question, if I may. Okay. Um, you said, besides modeling. <laughs> and I get asked this question a lot. And every time I'm asked, it's always besides modeling, besides modeling. But I don't think we should put that aside so quickly. Because the most important thing parents can do to prepare their children for successful marriages is the modeling. And if I could share with you a, a mushal from Shimshon uh, Fall Hirsch, he said, what is the most important thing a child needs to learn for success in life. A child needs to know a lot of things for success in life. But what's the most important thing? So he said, the most important thing a child needs to learn for success in life is how to walk on two feet upright 
and not to crawl on all fours. If a child is crawling on all fours for the rest of his life, he's not going to get very far, literally and figuratively. He has to learn to stand up and walk on two feet. All children learn it. How do they learn it? They don't learn it by going to the walking school. There's no walking school. They don't learn it by their parents sitting them down and instructing them, this is how you do it. They learn it by sitting on the floor and just watching the parents walk back and forth all day long, and the child gets into his head, that looks like a better way of getting around than the way I'm doing, and they want to imitate it, and they pull themselves up, and they take a few steps, and they see it's, it's a pretty good idea, and then they start walking. Modeling is the most important thing parents can do to prepare their children for success in life and marriage. So that's the first thing. But now, besides modeling, okay, we spoke about it now. What else can parents do to prepare their children for successful marriages? Two things I want to mention. The first may be obvious, but needs to be mentioned because it's so important. And that's tefillah, davening. Rapam Zatzal used to say how he heard his mother shedding tears during her tefillahs when she benched she lit candles Friday night, that her son should grow up to be a Tamachacham. And many Gedolim have stories about how their parents davened and prayed for their children to be successful in, in Lima Torah and learning and in success in life. The tefillahs of the parents go a long way not to guarantee, but to help their children succeed. So the first thing parents need to do is to daven and daven again and daven more. Daven to Hashem, strengthen your heart, and then just daven again. So that's the second thing. And the third thing I want to mention is that marriage is unique, it's different, but it's not so much different from other social relationships. It's a special relationship, but it's a relationship. And one of the things that prepares children most for successful relationships in marriage is the relationships they have with their friends, with their peers, with their classmates. A child who has friends is friendly, gets along well with his peers, can probably expect the same when he gets married. But a child is having difficulty, is jealous or isolated or overly hostile or selfish, not sharing, uh, not playing by the rules, uh, offending people, and withdrawn, isolated, shy, that's a child that's going to have problems in marriage also. So parents don't have to wait until the child 18, 19 to start thinking about marriage. When the child is in preschool, kindergarten, first grade, how they're relating to the other children in the class, how they're playing together, this is all part of preparation for marriage. When people develop healthy social skills, with their friends and their classmates and in camp, then they're preparing themselves for a successful marriage. And when children have difficulties, social difficulties, with their peers growing up, then that, that does not bode well for the future of their marriage. So much to uh, digest over here. Um, I will say to all those listening, um, just like you have to daven and then redaven. Sometimes these uh, um, these lessons you have to listen to and then re-listen to as well. Um, I joke, you know, I get, I, I did a uh, we we did a, um, a chabura. We had a chabura of people that learned mesachas uh, makos, and I joked with them. You got a chazer like a chazer. You got to got to review like you're a chazer. You know, that's so. I think with these uh, principles as well, you got to really review them and and let them uh, really sink in. Um, in closing, I understand that you love to write about Gedola Yisrael. 
um, the Torah leaders of our generation and past generations. And I know you ha- you're a master storyteller and you have so many, but if you could maybe cherry pick your favorite one or two Godel stories for our listeners. So a, a closing thought that could hopefully be inspiring. I want to know if you could share with us. Sure. Okay. Um, I'll pick two, if that's okay. Sure. Uh, the first one took place uh, when I was single. And my mother, last Shalom, was in the final stages of a terminal illness. And my brother and I had what today would be called an end-of-life Shiloh. So we asked one of our rebbeim, the Paschim Shiloh for us, and he told us, look, I'm prepared to Paschim the Shiloh for you, but it's a very sensitive, delicate area of halacha. And in later years, when you look back, you'll probably feel better if you have this Shiloh Paskin by the Gadol Hador, he said, if you can get into Rav Moshe Feinstein, he says, try to ask him the Shiloh. If you can't get into him, you can't get the Shiloh to him, come back to me, I'll be happy to Paskin for you. So we presented the Shiloh through an intermediary to Rav Moshe. We got back a Psak, and it was a difficult Psak to be Makabal. And I said to my brother, you know, I, I wish we could have presented the Shiloh ourselves because I'm not sure he understood all the ramifications, all the details. So he said to me, you know, actually, if we go right now and drive out to Staten Island, we can probably catch him. He goes twice a week to the yeshiva in Staten Island and he learns above the base medrash in two mornings a week. And if we go right now, we can catch him and he doesn't have any any uh, guards there, any uh, gatekeepers, and we can go into Ramosha ourselves. So we did that. We drove out to Staten Island. We came to Ramosha, that's all. We asked which room he was in. We knocked on the door. There was no one else there. He was sitting by himself in an empty room with a small wooden table, a wooden chair, pushed up against the window with a huge Gemara, unlined white paper and a fountain pen on top and he was learning and writing Kedushim and we knocked on the door, he answered the door himself and he asked what he could do, we said we had a Shiloh for him he asked what the Shiloh was we told him his first question was was such a sensitive Shiloh with a woman who's in such a serious illness, how come you're coming instead of your father so we said unfortunately our father had the nifter about a year before. He said, are either one of you married? He said, no, we're both Bahram. Neither one of them had been married yet. Two Bahram lost their father a year ago, and their mother is so sick now, Ramosha burst into tears. We were standing there in the hallway outside of the room where he was learning. And when he started crying, we started crying. And the three of us stood there just crying, just standing there crying. He, he was crying. Tears were dripping out of his eyes. I couldn't believe it. We were strangers. And he was so taken by our situation, our matzah. Then we stopped crying. He stopped crying. He gave us his psaac, which was, interestingly enough, different than what we had heard the day before. We questioned him. He said, look, I passed in the Shiloh based on the way the information was presented. I remember the Shiloh from yesterday, but the way I hear it now, I hear it differently. And he gave us a different psaac. Then he asked which one of us is older. He said, my brother is older. He turned to him, took his hand, gave him a very warm bracha that he should find a zivik soon. Took my hand. I felt the warm, soft, grandfatherly hands that he had. And he gave me a similarly warm bracha. My brother got engaged a few months later. I got married about a year later. But the impact of that encounter with such greatness was unforgettable. After he finished with us, Moshe turned as if nothing had happened, as if he hadn't experienced, and went back to learning and just went back to his safer 
and continued like like nothing had happened. That was this incredible encounter with Reb Moshe, and and uh, it, it stays with me till today. Wow, Thank that you. was one. That was one story. We have time for another. Of course. Okay. After I was married, I got a phone call from my uh, uh, one of my rebbeim. Uh, the late Boston Rebbe Zetzal from Boston, Lady Yitzhak Horowitz, called me up on a Sunday and he asked me what I'm doing today. I said, Rebbe, why do you want to, why does Rebbe want to know? He said, just tell me what you're doing. So I knew what that meant. That meant he, he wanted to know what I was doing before he asked me a favor in case I was doing something important that I couldn't uh, cancel. He wouldn't ask me the favor. I said, Rebbe, whatever it is, tell me. What can I do for you? He said, he's coming into New York. He needs someone to pick him up at the airport. I said, I'd be happy to do it. He said, wait, 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 before you agree to take me up, I need to go to Monroe. I said, I know how to get to Monroe. Not a problem. Okay. I picked up the Rebbe at the airport. We drove to Monroe. He explained to me he had to see the Satmarov. He had an ankle that was just born with a serious medical condition, and he wanted a bracha from the Satmarov. Okay. So we came to the curious, there was no curious yoil then. The Satmarov had just moved to, to Monroe. There was a, just a handful of Hasidim with him. We miraculously found his house because I didn't know where his house was, but we found it somehow. And uh, after Mincha, the Rebbe went over to the Gabai to write a kvittel for him. And the Rebbe said, and you write a kvittel for him also, meaning me. The Gabai said, no, no, no. This works. The Rebbe, the Rav, the Satmarov is very old. He's very weak. Even Satma Hasidim cannot get in to see him. You are a Rebbe. I'm running a kvittel for you. But I can't write a kvittel for him. He gave a kvittel to the Rebbe. And then we waited until Marav. The Boston Rebbe turned to me. He says, you have to get in to see him. I said, I can't. They didn't give me a kvittel. He says, you will not have another opportunity. You must get in to see him. I said, what am I supposed to do? They didn't write a kvittel. I can't go in without a kvittel. He said, I'll tell you what you're going to do. When they open the door for me, I want you to push in after me and you'll get in. And you need to see the Satmarov. I said, why do I need to see the Satmarov? He says, because you need a bracha from him. You don't have children yet. We were married for about over a year. We didn't have children yet. He said, you need a bracha from the Satmarov. I said, well, I don't know. I, 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 I'm uncomfortable if they didn't allow me in it. He said, the only time he ever told me, he said, I'm your Rebbe, and I'm telling you, you have to listen to me. When they open the door, I want you to hold on to my gartel and press against my back, and you'll push in after me. So I listened to him. When they opened the door, he walked in. I pushed in behind him. They slammed the door so no one else should get in. I was petrified. No one said anything. The Rebbe went over to the Satmarov, spoke to him. And when he finished, they indicated that I should go over to him. I didn't know how it worked, but the protocol was, they said, just tell the Rebbe what you want, what you need. So I said, I need children. I don't have children yet. The Satmarov was very old, very weak. He mumbled something. I didn't hear a word he said. He lifted up his hand for me to shake it. I took his hand, said, Amen. I never heard what he said. I didn't hear a single word. But nine months later, my first child was born. Wow. We have Tzadike Yisrael, Gedele Taira. We have to hold on tight. Yes. Beautiful. Wow. We will cherish those. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Wickler. Uh, it's been an honor to have you on our program. Um, Kolot is the show where uh, we have many, many different voices so it's really uh, as a chus for us to have you join our program to hear about how we could have better lives, better relationships, better homes. Um, you've given so much to Kalal Yisrael, as you mentioned, Torah anytime um, with, on that platform and all the books and articles you've written. So it's the honor has been ours to have you on. And uh, Hashem should bench you and your mishpacha. You should have much continued hatzlacha. And... Uh, 
We shall all be make, making our marriages great and keep on making them great. And Mirza Hashem, uh, only, only good things for us in the entire Qal Yisrael. Amen. Thank you for inviting me. To listen to all Kolot episodes and see upcoming guests, visit kolopodcast.com. We are also on all podcast players. Type in Kolot on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Podbean, and Amazon. Share with your friends and please make sure to give us a five-star review. Kolot is a project of the Columbus Community Kolel, a full-time Jewish learning center in Bexley, staffed with high-caliber Torah scholars. Ever since 1995, boys, girls, men and women from all backgrounds and affiliations have found many opportunities to connect with Torah and mitzvahs at the Kolel. Whether it's a study partner, engaging lesson, or a program, the Kolel is your one-stop shop for all your Jewish learning. If you want to know how you can benefit from the Kolel, visit thekolel.org. That is T-H-E-K-O-L-L-E-L dot org and forever be inspired.